So I go to take my written test and I'm sitting in, in a room at the uh, Portland Convention Center and I was in session one of two and there were 3,000 people in the room. Wow. And <laughs> so they might hire, you know, 25 oh. or 50 people that year. And I, and so out of two sets, so it's out of 6,000 basically people. Yeah. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so that's how competitive it was wow. back then. To Bluntly Bears. Um, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this week's guest is Alex. I am also Alex. So this this will be fun. Alex with Alex. Alex squared. Alex squared. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, Alex, it is so, so nice to, to have you. This happened so randomly, like that we just ran into each other and within like two minutes, we scheduled a, a podcast appearance. Yeah. Well, we were, we were both having a sugar craving, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that crumble cookies man it gets you yeah it definitely gets you but uh it's been a few years i think since really we've we've hung out or like talked much so yeah this is cool this is oh, cool to, nice to catch up yeah yeah but uh i guess to start with uh it would be kind of cool to to hear for me and for the audience which uh what you've been up to the last last couple of years what a little bit about yourself yeah so i guess i'll kind of recap the the last 10 years of my life, maybe, but I think that would be most appropriate. So, um, well, the last 10 years I've spent, um, pursuing a career in my, in the fire service. And so that is a decision I made when I was about 16 years old. I was taking anatomy and physiology in high school with a friend of mine, uh, at the time. And we were kind of joking around about what to what career we wanted to do. And, um, you know, the reason I was taking anatomy and physiology is because I was kind of thinking I was going to go do something in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And my mom worked in a hospital in the kitchen. And so I, at 16, I was already working in the kitchen at St. Vincent's Medical Center. So I was kind of getting exposed to medicine a little bit, even though I was just working in the kitchen. And of course, my parents thought healthcare is a a great place to be and they encouraged me to pursue that and at that point in high school I was getting really good grades I can't remember exactly but I had a 4.0 until like 10th grade or something and then after that I started to (laughs) to get uh like my grades started to get less good um because that's kind of when I started figuring out what I wanted to do and I uh wasn't focusing on school as much um well anyway so I was sitting there in A&P with my friend and he said, hey, what if we became firefighters? It was kind of a joke that he made. And I didn't think anything of it. We we're just kind of joking around every, like we do every day. But then I started looking into it because I had done a job shadow with a physician and I asked them, you know, what it took to become a physician. And mm-hmm. that's when I found out it takes like eight to 12 years of schooling you get in a bunch of school debt. And at the time to get into a bunch of school debt was inconceivable to me because my parents, basically both of them worked minimum wage jobs. We were poor pretty much the, my, my entire childhood and even into my adulthood. So to, to be in school for like 10 years, making no money and going to debt was 
just inconceivable. Yeah. So, well, so I Googled how to become a firefighter. And the first thing that came up was Portland Fire and Rescue. And so on their on their website, it actually said, hey, you only have to be 18 to test and you have to have a high school diploma and you can uh, you can join the fire department. So I thought, well, that's interesting. But then I found out that firefighters went on medical calls. That was that was actually when I first discovered that. I had no idea that firefighters were going on medical calls before this. So I didn't know anybody in the fire service. I had like virtually no idea really what the job was. But I figured out, hey, I'm kind of interested in medicine. They go on medical calls. It seems like this is a pretty stable, good career. I'm going to give it a shot. So I actually took my very first uh, job test when I was 17 years old because the rule was you just had to be 18 by the time they decide to hire you. So I go to do this test and basically they, uh, the way Portland fire was doing the test at the time was they printed out the whole training manual for you. It was like 300 pages. You read through the whole manual and then the test is based off of, off of that manual. So if you do well on it, you move on. If you don't, you don't move on. So this was like 2008. So this is kind of when the financial crash was happening and everybody was looking for a financial or a, a stable job, right? Mm-hmm. And what could be more stable than working for the government at, at the time? So um, so I go to take my written test and I'm sitting in, in a room at the uh, Portland Convention Center and I was in session one of two and there were 3,000 people in the room. Wow. And <laughs> so they might hire, you know, 25 or 50 people that year and i and so out of two sets so it's out of six thousand basically people yeah so (laughs) so so that's how competitive it was back then as you can imagine i didn't do too well on the test (laughs) i was 17 years old i didn't really know what i was doing i didn't study hard enough Um, most people there like older would you say or oh yeah everybody was in their 20s or 30s for the most part most firefighters when they first join they're usually in their 20s or 30s um I know of a couple guys that have been able to uh, get a job when they were 40 or even 50. That's kind of usually when guys start to retire is usually in their 50s. But um, yeah, so yeah, I was way out of my element. But it was cool because I got exposed and I got surrounded by the testing process. And that's kind of what kickstarted my journey into it. so through my high school, there was also a program to do job shadows. That's how I did the physician job shadow. Well, the next job shadow I decided to do was like, well, I should probably go spend a day with some firefighters and see if I actually really like it. Yeah. So I tell my school counselor, I want to go do this job shadow. They hook me up and I go do a job shadow at Station three in Milwaukee at Clackamas Fire. And funny enough, the the guy who is uh who is doing my job shadow with for me, his sister was working with me at uh Providence St. Vincent. So small world. 
uh, <laughs> life lesson there. Like, make sure you make positive <laughs> impressions on everybody because you never know who who you're going to interact with. Because I was working with his sister at St. Vincent's, and it just happened that he worked at Clackamas Fire, and then he was the person that was uh, doing my job shadow. So anyway, I remember being there, uh, spending a whole day going on calls and showing, he, sh- he was showing me all the paramedic drugs that they use and the fire truck. And they showed me how they drilled and we didn't go on the fire that day, but like I was hooked. Yeah. Uh, and from that kind of started my path. And from there on, I was just, relentless in pursuing it and that's what i did for you know the last 10 years and you know uh officially got hired as a firefighter paramedic with uh polk county fire about uh five and a half years ago so that's what i've been doing ever since yeah that's awesome so wow uh going from 16 i can't imagine i mean I've, i've changed so many things and i've changed my mind on so many things since i was 16 and that's that's really cool that you kind of stuck, like you found what you wanted to do and you stuck through it. Um, and yeah, you, you made, you made it happen. So I'm assuming then like if they're so selective, they're not just looking at the testing. It's also background and resume. So like was what you were doing, like those shadow programs, things like that, were those things that help you ultimately get into the, 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 the program? Yeah. You know, one of the funny things about pursuing a career in the fire services I found out that, man, they do very extensive background checks. And so when I first applied for Portland Fire, they wanted to know, like, every place I worked at, mm-hmm. every school I went to, and they wanted, like, three references from every job. And and so, you know, I've, I've never done the background investigation part of it, um, but... What I've heard is when these background investigators call people, they will say like, hey, tell us another person that knows this person that can give us an opinion about him. Very sensitive. So, yeah. And then, of course, they do. They run all your criminal background stuff. And, you know, when I found that out, that actually helped encourage me to stay out of trouble. <laughs> and if I'm being perfectly honest with you, I had a couple of friends that were not the best influence at the time. And... uh you know, not that I threw them out of my life, but, you know, whenever they would do something that wasn't exactly the most uh, moral thing or the most ethical thing, I would say, hey, look, I can't do that with you. And, you know, you say that enough times to somebody, eventually, you know, uh, you you don't really hang out with those people anymore. Yeah. So it kind of forced me to change the circle I was with and to be with people that are more positive and have a cleaner lifestyle and so it really helped me stay stay out of trouble just just knowing that was a part of the requirement but but you have to be really convicted that this is like the right career for you the right way to go to like basically cut off ties with people right like was like was that the case what like i said i didn't cut off ties with people i just told them like i can't do this activity with you sure um you know like people wanted to for instance race their cars like like dude i i can't do that if i get a ticket i'm i'm never going to pass a background check um and it's it was very competitive at the time in 2008 it was like you know thousands of people applying for a handful of jobs mm-hmm. today if anybody wants to become a firefighter it's easier than probably it's ever been 
like uh, right now at our department, we're hiring and we, uh, for, for one of the positions that we have, we want to hire six people and we only got like 45 applicants mm -hmm. and we're thinking probably 20 of them are serious applicants. So wow. it's, it's easier than it's ever been. And just cause the economy is so different now. Um, there's, there's a lot more jobs than people to fill them. So yeah, it's different now. You get, we're, we're becoming a little more lenient <laughs> when we're, when we're when so you're saying there's hope, there's hope for us out there that we could, that we could still get in. The people that want to do it. Yeah. Like not, not now is a good time to do it. Yeah. I think probably in about another five or 10 years, it's going to become extremely hard again um, to get hired. And part of that is because the, there's kind of a wave of people retiring right now. And so all those slots need to get filled of, of those retirements. And that's just kind of the nature of how government jobs and, right. and the, and the timing has been going for the fire service is just, we have a lot of people retiring right now and it's going to take quite a few people to fill all those empty spots. So are most people lifers basically in, in, in the, in the field? I would say, yeah, probably over 90% of people, if they, if they get a job, in the fire service, that's kind of what they do until they retire. And then, and then maybe they do something else. You know, there's, there's that like 10 or so or less percent that decide that it's not for them, but you know, over 90% majority of us stick with it for, for the majority of our career. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So what, what did you do in between that seven, you know, when you were 17 and you took the test the first time up until five and a half years ago to, to kind of prepare you for the, for the role? Yeah, I I basically made it my life's obsession um, and really just focused on it. And I, uh, part of it was just kind of like, like my, you know, I, I had some noble reasons to pursue the job because mm -hmm. um, I really, at the time, you know, what I thought was this is the best way I could serve humanity. This was uh, my calling um, and you know, now that I'm 30 years old, I've kind of matured and realized that I don't have to have a very specific job to serve humanity. I can serve my fellow man in any capacity that I, that I'm in. I don't have to have a certain job title to serve. Um, you know, I could be, I could be, uh, working construction and serve somebody because sure. every business is a people business ultimately. If, if somebody's paying you to do a service, they're paying you because they need it done. And, um, and so you're serving people no matter, no matter what job you're doing. So at the time, that's not how I thought. I thought that was like becoming a firefighter was the best way to serve people. And in, in many ways it can be. So, but then I also had this kind of arrogant side to me where um, at the time it was kind of popular for mainstream media to say like you can do anything you want and, and so I was kind of like thinking like man I really want to do this goal and it seems impossible right now and if I was completely honest with you I don't think I had anybody that believed in me that I could do mm -hmm. it you know I think I had some people that maybe gave me some fake support <laughs> yeah and but I I really had to uh pursue it on my on my own and figure it out um my parents, you know, they supported me. They, 
they, you know, still help me with, um, you know, paying bills while I was still going through college. But, you know, even they were questioning whether I could actually accomplish this goal. Um, so, so you were going to college at the, at the time after that? Yeah. So you, you do have to go, you do have to get, um, a couple certifications to, um, to become a firefighter. So like a lot of the departments in this area, they require you to be an EMT, uh, which can take about three to six months to obtain that certification. And then to become a paramedic, you have to have at least an associate's degree and you have to go through paramedic school. So okay. in total, that can take about two to three years to get your associates and become a paramedic. So yeah, I was going through school. Initially, I got I got my EMT license and did that for about three years uh, on a private ambulance. And then I decided uh, that I was going to need to become a paramedic and, um, and I just wanted a more advanced training and, you know, and the increases, it would increase my odds of becoming a firefighter. So I did that, went through paramedic school, finished that. And a couple months later I got hired as a firefighter paramedic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to recap kind of all the things I did was I joined the Clackamas fire, um, what they call the Explorer program, which is like a version of a, a cadet program. I spent a year in that program, uh, showing up every week for two drills. I also joined the Portland fire Explorer program and again, showed up every week to drills. And then in 2012, I became a volunteer firefighter with Clackamas fire and I spent about a thousand hours a year volunteering my time, learning and going to as many drills as I can. Any class that was available that was wow. that was free or that I could get the department to pay for, or even if it wasn't free, if it was a couple hundred bucks and I knew it was going to build my resume, I shelled that money out and I went and took the class and tried to make my resume as good as I could make it. And then when I turned 21... You, you, most ambulance companies want you to be at least 21 because they have to ensure you to drive and you have to drive code three, which is lights and sirens. Mm-hmm. So I, when I turned 21, that's when I started working as an EMT and I would go on 911 calls and take uh, medical calls from hospital to hospital. And I did that for about three and a half years getting that experience. So basically from like 16 till about, uh, I think I, I think I was maybe 24 and I got, no. Yeah, I was 24, I think, when I got hired as a firefighter officially. Yeah, that's what I did. I just, that's kind of what I obsessed about. If I had a job, the job was just to make enough money to just get by. And then everything <laughs> everything yeah, else I, I kind of focused on on that. I was trying and, to do the math of, of, of a thousand hours a year, what that actually equates to. And that's not, like, that's a lot of time. To yeah, I mean, it's like it's like a basically a part-time job because if you have a full-time job you're working about 2000 hours a year and if you wow. have a part-time job you're working about 1000 hours a year. So yeah. you know I was spending like 1000 hours a year uh being a volunteer then I was spending another 1000 hours a year working then I was spending, you know, I don't know, 500 to another 1000 hours going to school and studying and all that. So, you know, I had almost like an equivalent of maybe two full-time jobs continuously off and on, depending on what I was doing. 
Um, so I had to put in a lot of work. I, I basically had to learn, uh, through, uh, trial by fire, uh, no pun intended, (laughs) (laughs) but like, you know, I didn't have anybody to guide me. I didn't know all the steps that I needed to do. I had a friend, uh, who I was volunteering with. Um, he was able to get a job within about, I think two years from, from becoming a volunteer to being paid and you know his dad was a firefighter already so so in combination with his work ethic and his dad guiding him step by step he was able to accomplish the goal much quicker mm-hmm. it took me a little longer um because i didn't because i didn't really have uh those relationships i had to build those relationships over time i had to prove myself i had to figure out how to actually accomplish this goal um figure out the culture, how to fit in, how to actually excel and make good impressions and actually do the job well. And yeah, it took me a while to figure it out. It took me several, quite a few years like and it. then, but I just stuck with, stuck with it and quit and here I am. So where, where do uh, the relationships come in? Is it, is it because it's so selective that those relationships really matter in like getting you the opportunities uh, to, to get into the field or uh, is it because that person's done it and they can say, Hey, you should, you know, work at this job or volunteer here. How, how does it really help? So, you know, way back when it used to be kind of like a good old uh, boy system where yeah. if you knew somebody, they could kind of help you get into the department. Um, and, maybe there were some benefits to that back in the day, but there's also a lot of disadvantages to that. Um, you know, it, uh, it could be like discriminatory. Sure. It could also, uh, somebody could get in just cause they know somebody, not because they're necessarily a good candidate. Um, so where, where the relationships actually help is it's not that they can get you a job, it's that they can guide you on what's the best way to go about it, right? So they can guide you on how do you prepare for the written test? How do you prepare for the physical agility test? What is the interview process like? And what kind of questions do they ask? And how do you answer these questions? I think a lot of people would find the interview process very surprising for for the fire department because most people are used to coming into a interview for a private job and you get to have a back and forth conversation yeah. kind of like what we're having, you know, your interviewer might ask you a question, you answer it, you might be able to ask a question back. Um, but in the fire service, part of the, the reason why the testing process is the way it is, is, is it's to eliminate bias. It's to eliminate unfairness. It's to be as fair as we possibly can. And so, you know, a typical fire interview is you come in and there's a panel of four people sometimes and they will ask you five questions. They ask the questions exactly the same way of each candidate. And some fire departments are so strict where they are even instructed that they're not supposed to show any um, any emotion back towards you. Because, again, that gives uh, bias to, um, wow. to a certain candidate. If you show them emotion and you don't show another candidate emotion. So imagine you coming in to do an interview there's four firefighters sitting there and they ask you, you know, they might ask a question like, tell us about a time you made a mistake. And 
now you're supposed to try to sell yourself through this question. Everybody's sitting up there with blank stares, not reacting to what you're saying. <laughs> Just a little and, intense. Yeah. Yeah. And like one of the best interview tips they have is you want to be enthusiastic in your answers. You don't want to sound just monotone and boring and no energy in your answer. Well, how do you give an enthusiastic answer when everyone <laughs> is just sitting there and they're instructed to not react to your answers? So it's a very different interview process than just going for a private interview. And so when you pat, you know, so a lot of departments will do like a written test, physical test, oral interview, and sometimes it can be multiple oral panels that you have to pass. Um, depending on how de- big the department is. But if you pass all those things, then you get put on the list. And so depending on how many jobs there are, let's say the department's going to hire 20 people. Mm-hmm. Well, they might make the list 200 people long. And so if you get in the top 20 spots, then you get to move on and go through the process. So usually they'll pick like 30 people, those people will move on through the rest of the process in case somebody doesn't make it through all the process. And then, um, and so like the rest of the process would be like, you have to do a medical evaluation, psychological evaluation, background check. Um, they might, uh, and then, yeah. So background, psychological, medical evaluation, and then, you know, if you pass all those things, then you might have like a final interview with the chief of the department and the chief might say he likes you or she might say she doesn't like you. And, you know, it could be up to, to them to be the final decision maker. So at a smaller department, it can be a shorter test time um, just because short uh, smaller departments don't have as many candidates usually and they don't have to, they don't have the budget to spend uh, on having such a uh, selective hiring process. But like I tested at Seattle one time where I actually tested Seattle several times and you have to go through like three oral panel interviews before you, before you're given like wow. an actual job offer. So, wow. Mm. And so that's after you take the written test, the whatever percentage of people that pass that you can take it one time and pass it and then, you know, interview at multiple stations. Is that how that works or, or, it's changed a little bit recently. There is now a private company called National Testing Network. And there's also another one called, uh, I think it's called Public Safety Testing Group, which I, I don't think I've taken their test. But now what they do is uh, you can do a written test at home. Um, because of COVID-19, it's really changed things where you can do a written test at home. You have to set up your computer in a certain room and there's rules you have to follow um, I think anybody who's taking a college course right now is familiar with the process because you have to set up your room a certain sure. way to prove that you're not cheating. And you can just take this written test at home. It'll test you on like reading, writing, math, and mechanical skills. And then it'll also, um, there'll be a significant portion about testing your like personality traits and how you interact with people. And then you get a score based off of that. And you can actually send your score to multiple departments at the same time. It uh, You have to pay money for taking this test. And I can't remember what exactly it costs, but it's a couple hundred bucks to like send your score to multiple departments. But if you think about it, it can actually be cheaper to do it that way instead of driving to every single department that you want to test right. for 
and give up your weekends or nights or whatever to go and spend money on travel and booking a hotel. And, you know, it's like a fire department job is not kind of, it's not like accounting where there might be hundreds of accounting jobs in your area. You know, in your area, there's one fire department. And if that fire department doesn't hire you, then you have to go to the next area over. Yeah, and so it's not like you can't. It's not like you can just go to the state and say, "Hey, I'm looking for a fire department job," and they go out to all these different places. You have to go to each place specifically and and look for a job in that specific department. Yeah, and like maybe Portland is hiring right now, and if if I don't get a job with Portland, maybe no other departments in the area are hiring right now. But Seattle Fire is, so then I have to go test for Seattle, you know, and that's. Uh, back then I actually had to, you know, drive all the way up there, maybe wow. book a hotel. And so, so yeah, it was, it was, uh, what people would actually do in, like I said, national testing network has kind of changed it, but it was kind of funny cause it was kind of fun too. Cause you would, uh, have all your friends who you were ch- testing with and, you know, we would all basically take, book the test together and we would book a hotel, split the cost of that, mm-hmm. make a trip out of going up and testing or wh- wherever we wanted to go test. And so that culture kind of has gone away since since um, National Testing Network has kind of taken on a lot of departments. So, so there's still the panel interviews, but the- yeah. So you you would have to you would have to score well enough on the written test. And now what they also do is what's called a CPAT test a candidate physical agility test and you either pass or you don't. And, um, I personally don't think it's that hard of a test. Uh, but you know, uh, some people, uh, don't pass it. And so you do that through the national test network. They send your scores to the department. They might pick like the highest scores that they want and then invite you to an interview. And I've actually even heard of some, fire departments now where they are doing zoom interviews. Mm. So like your first interview might be a zoom interview, but I know of, uh, some, I know most departments are still making candidates come in for, uh, for an oral interview and going, going through that process. So, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully the, I think a lot of companies with COVID have evolved a little bit with zoom, but it it seems like it's, it's some of it is getting there, but not, not all the way. Yeah, our you got to remember everything in government moves <laughs> slower than it True. does in the private world, and I think, I think uh, in many ways the testing process has become more fair and more equitable. But uh, we're, but you know the the problem we're running into right now is, like I was saying earlier, uh, there are now more jobs than people to fill those jobs, and. Uh, and we're, but we're still doing the same hard testing process, which, mm. you know, if somebody's already working somewhere and their job's pretty good, you know, why, why would they, um, why would they give up their good job to go through this time consuming, costly testing process to get a job that maybe even pays them less than what they're making at their current job? So I, I do think, I, w- I do wish that, um, we as a fire service wake up and make our testing process more accommodating so that we can recruit the good people and not, uh, not unexpectedly filter those people out just because we have a complicated testing process. So, 
it's there for a reason. We want to try to get good people in, but um, I think we're also shooting ourselves in the foot right now be, be, just because of how the economy is right now. So, Yeah, no, it's a lot, a lot of things are, you're right in that government takes takes a while to to catch up education takes a while to catch up so yeah i i have a one of my captains that i work for he he very wisely told me you know it's like look alex if you want to implement anything in government it takes three years it's you have to request it and 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 get it approved for and put into the budget and once it's in the budget you have a year to spend that money and once you spent that money, then it's going to take you a year to implement that thing, whatever it is that you're trying to implement. So basically, anything you want to do in the government, <laughs> you know, with government budgets, it's it's a, about a three year process yep. to to make it happen. So yeah, I've I've worked. Um, my company does business to business sales, um, and a few cases I've come across government agencies that have tried to purchase our our, our stuff, and it's. No one likes to deal with that because it's always like, okay, you have a first call, you talk about the product, the pricing, and then like two years later, they come back and ask to buy it because yes, like it takes a while. They can't just off off the whim uh, purchase anything. Yeah. So, I mean, if it's whoever, whichever government agency you're selling to, if it's not in their budget, like yeah. even if they want to purchase your product um, because it's going to be beneficial to their department, you know, they have to first write that request it has to get approved. It's got to get put, put into their budget. And then, you know, they might have to wait up to a year for that fiscal cycle to right. end and for that new fiscal budget cycle to begin to where they can spend that money. So, and there's a good reason why it's that way. It's because we're spending public tax dollars sure. and you can't just spend it however you want. It's got to go through a budget committee and get approved so that we're not just, throwing money around wherever we feel like it. Um, so there's a good reason why it's done that way, but it is a slow process. It's not like a private company that can just decide to spend their money next week on on whatever product or service that yeah. you want to sell them. So. For sure. For sure. So going back to that process of leading up to you, you getting your job, um, I know you said you went up to Seattle a, a few times. Uh, do you know like how many times and how many different stations you applied to in total before you got your your current job uh probably over 20 times Pro probably about that yeah probably over 20 times yeah and and part of it is just i was testing during the financial crisis mm -hmm. um so departments were kind of slow to hire part of it was i was young and inexperienced and didn't really know what i was doing i wasn't saying the right things in the interview and, you know, when, when you're saying the right things in the interview, it's not that I'm trying to manipulate my answers into into convincing them to hire me. It's that I just I just didn't know the qualities of a firefighter. I didn't know the philosophies that I should have. And once I matured and developed those philosophies, developed those qualities, I think it became easier for for me to get hired. And once I became qualified enough, it became easier to get hired. So... Like I said, I had a friend who, whose dad was a firefighter. He mentored him, told him exactly mm -hmm. the processes he needed to do. He became a paramedic much sooner than I did and, and got hired. And it took me a little while to figure out that I needed to become a paramedic. 
And so I became a paramedic and I got hired. So you don't have to become a paramedic necessarily, but it increases your odds greatly um, in this in this area um, because most fire departments in our Portland metropolitan area, they want you to, to be a paramedic, so. Okay. Awesome. And so when, when you finally did get hired on, how, how did that differ from like the volunteer experience? Was, was the job drastically different? You know, uh, that can be like a, that can actually be kind of a sensitive topic in our, in, in, in the fire service because, um, you know, you know, union, you know, union career firefighters like to think that they are, uh, maybe more professional than the volunteers and the volunteers like to think they're just as professional as, huh. as, as a career, uh, sure. firefighter. My mindset was always that when I was a firefighter, I was a firefighter and I was going to do it to the best of my ability, no matter what. And so when I first became a volunteer firefighter in 2012, in my mind, I made it like I was doing what I wanted to do. I was going to fires. I was going on medical calls. I was going on car accidents. Um, I was going on rescue calls and it was awesome. I was having the time of my life and I love being a, I love being a volunteer firefighter and I would have kept doing it except, you know, the realities of life, you have to pay bills. Yeah. And so, you know, eventually I had to figure out how to actually get a career job at it. And, um, but I don't, you know, I wasn't a lesser firefighter just because I was a volunteer. It's just, that's where I started. And as I learned and progressed, um, I went and became a career firefighter. Um, you know, most communities in America are actually protected by volunteer firefighters. Um, majority of them, over 70% of communities in America are solely protected by volunteers. Wow. So it's just the, in the cities, the calls are so many that it's hard to ask a volunteer to give up that much time to handle the calls. Um, and that's why in cities you have to have paid firefighters because there's just too many calls. Um, even if somebody's willing to take all those calls, well, you know, if you're working at nine to five and there's a fire down the road at 2 p.m., but you have a business meeting with the client at 2 p.m., imagine you have to constantly blow off clients or you have to stop your projects at work. Like you're, you're going to get nothing done at work and mm -hmm. it's unfair to expect volunteers to, to do that. Right. A lot. Was a lot of it like that when, when it's a volunteer department where it's not necessarily a set schedule, but it's like an on-call kind of thing. So like the department I work at right now, uh, we serve a community of about 25,000 people. So we have paid people, which I'm one of them. And we handle the majority of the calls. And majority of our calls are uh, medical. So that usually only takes one ambulance, maybe an engine or a second ambulance to handle. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next category of calls that we get uh, frequently after that is car accidents. Most car accidents can be handled with one ambulance, one engine response, maybe one rescue response. And so... You know they're not they're not very resource heavy, but if we get uh, a fire call, and you know it's a structure fire or a commercial fire, you know now we need you know five, six, seven, eight engines and trucks and ladders and rescues. Well, 
each unit has to have three or four people on it. And we only have four pe- four paid people on each day. Mm-hmm. So when we get a fire, we take the engine and we take the ambulance with us, but then all the rest of the units, we have to rely on the volunteers to, to come out and, and, uh, and bring all those apparatus. Now, most of the volunteers that we do have, uh, they either have very understanding employers or they only come out during the evenings and weekends or um, probably about a third of our volunteers are self-employed or they just work from home so they can just turn off their laptop and go and and their bosses are very understanding of that. So, But we don't have any volunteers that work strictly nine to five and sure. are able to respond at 11, right? Uh, they can't help us on a fire that happens at 11 a.m. Yeah. No, oh, that's interesting. And, and I never realized 70%, that's a big number of yeah. communities to be run by volunteers. That's, yeah. that's so, crazy. So here in Vancouver, you have Vancouver Fire. Vancouver is pretty much all paid. I think they might still have one station that's kind of volunteer, but a big department like Vancouver, whenever they have a volunteer program, it's kind of just a program not necessarily to enhance community coverage. It's kind of more like an opportunity to provide people um, uh, to get their foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Portland doesn't have any volunteers. Um, Clackamas, which is the agency I started with, they do have volunteers. Like, but that program is um, where you kind of like sign up for shifts and you you show up and you sign up for shifts and you spend nights at the state at a volunteer station out in a rural community. You don't go on very many calls, but occasionally you do. Um, but it's not like the district is relying on you to provide coverage. Um, they there's you know there's about seventy career people on every day at Clackamas, and those are the, those are the guys that usually handle most of the calls um, and gals. Um, but like where I work right now, you know. We we handle most of the medical calls as paid people, but then the volu- the majority of the department is actually volunteers, mm-hmm. and we heavily rely on our volunteers. We could not function without the volunteer firefighters we have, and we don't have the budget to hire a bunch more paid people. Like we have enough to hire four per 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 shift, and that's all we have. Um, we are working on trying to get a federal grant called a safer grant. Um, and that's a program through the federal government where they kind of help us, um, match, uh, some money and we're hoping to hire six more people, which would uh, allow us to put two additional people on per shift. And so we might be able to go to six people, um, in a, in a few months if everything works out, but otherwise we, we handle it with the four paid people and then everything else is, uh, heavily relied on. Uh, we heavily rely on our volunteers. And so like, you know, when you asked earlier, like what's the difference between volunteer and in the career? Well, a lot of times it's just volunteer firefighters might be newer and they're looking to get their foot in the door to become a career firefighter. But in these smaller communities, you also have volunteers who have been volunteers for decades mm-hmm. and they are there because they like doing it. They protect their community they serve the community. They realize that there's a huge need for somebody to respond because if they're not there, then they're effectively there's no uh, uh, fire 
force to help put out fires in their community. And we all know what, <laughs> what can happen if you don't put out a fire. And I think, yeah, I think everybody around here has realized, you know, how dangerous it can actually be, especially from the experiences of 2020 when people saw the sky was black with smoke and maybe even if it didn't directly affect your community, I think everybody's kind of developed a healthy understanding yeah. of how important fire protection is. Can you, can you talk at all about that, about how that, like that experience was for you guys? Yeah, we, you know, at our agency, we tried to help out as much as we could. Uh, what we do is um, when the state's resources are overwhelmed, we will send out crews to help other departments or help the state wherever we're needed. So I think we sent out a couple engine companies um, of volunteers to go help. Um, the caveat with that is, though, is now there's less people left in our district yeah, yeah, to yeah. to protect it. So it was a pretty stressful time, you know, because we have this large fire coming on. Um, at the time, it was getting into Marion County and going into Clackamas County. And during that time, it was very dry and windy. Mm-hmm. And we had a couple fires happen in Polk Fire. Um, you know, luckily, we were able to put those fires out before they also turned into big conflagrations. But if we wouldn't, you know, the scary thought was that if we didn't put those little fires out that 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 got started in our district, the state had nobody else left to send to us. Like, the state was out of resources. That was probably one of the scariest times ever in, in Oregon's history in 2020 because we were at a very real possibility of, you know, I mean, we did lose many communities, actually. I don't know if you've driven, like, through Lyons or, mm-hmm. like, I no. mean, those communities are destroyed. There's, like, more than half the homes are gone, you know, and that's what happens when you can't get a fire under control quick enough. It only takes one fire. That's it, you know. So, for instance, like Portland Fire, um, I can't remember exactly what year, but I, I think maybe, I want to say maybe 1883. But the reason Portland Fire was formed was because at the time, a quarter of Portland burned to the ground. One quarter of the city burned to the ground. Wow. And that was when they said, hey, we should have a fire department. <laughs> and that's And that's when the Portland Fire and Rescue was was formed um and so you know now portland fire has over 30 fire stations and and that's why they protect portland you know it it only takes one fire to potentially wipe out a a majority of the city so so every fire that is put out is potentially saving an entire city that's one way to to think about it yeah that's crazy that's crazy uh it seems like it's a lot of the decisions that cities and states and governments make are very reactive, right? Like because of that, they put in a new department because they saw what happened, right? Like, is that, is that kind of a challenge? Like, you know, if you guys trying to get approval for more resources after seeing, you know, kind of what could happen with a big fire, like what happened in 2020, is that, is that the case? Is a lot of like measures pretty reactive? Well, in government it's it's difficult to it's difficult to justify the money you want to spend a lot of the time because 
um, especially for something like police agency or fire agency, where we are there for when something bad happens. And I think it's natural as humans to look at something like like the fire department and be like, man, that fire truck, 90% of the time, it doesn't <laughs> go to a fire. So maybe I can get away with reducing the fire coverage. And you know what? You could do that. And honestly, you could probably get lucky for a long time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you cut you cut the coverage enough and and then you don't get lucky and something happens that is beyond the resources to handle and and then you get something that like what happened in 2020 so Mm -hmm. the state ran out of resources and we got lucky that the weather changed and the that uh big fire was able to die down um otherwise we didn't have the resources to to handle it so we just got lucky that the weather pattern changed. So I'm not saying here that, you know, the fire department, you should give them as much money as you can and, you know, let's increase all the fire taxes. But like there's a purpose for us existing and you can't just continue to try to cut our funding and move uh, the money into another um, city department. And, you know, if you keep cutting the budget for, like police or fire or EMS, eventually it will, you know, it'll bite you. You will, people will die or people will lose homes and communities can get destroyed just because you wanted to save a couple thousand bucks or what, whatever amount yeah. of money was. So, um, you know, uh, I'm sure there's somebody could probably do the math of where it's the perfect amount of money to spend. Um, but it's not always about just, uh, the math portion of it, it's also about like, you know, if someone's community gets destroyed, you know, sometimes that's uh, like you that's you can't just rebuild a community with all the same neighbors that you had with all the same friends that you had. All those people have to go somewhere else to live because there's no houses left to live in that community. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I wasn't going to uh, come on here and talk about uh fire department budgets and all that and get no, political about is, it. This is, but this is interesting yeah. stuff. So it's, um, I, I just encourage people that, you know, when you're voting and you're, you're, you're voting and seeing where your tax dollars go, just be thoughtful about what, you, where you're sending your money and where you are cutting money. Um, because if you cut you're, if you cut the if you cut the tax dollars to go to public safety too much, it can it can it could bite you. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, like like I said, sometimes it takes a scare like that for us to realize that. Um, mm-hmm. I I just can't imagine what it's like for those in California that are affected by that kind of stuff year in and year out. Like that's just that's insane. That's insane. Yeah. So you know, California does things pretty. In an interesting way, they actually just have a uh, what they have is called Cal Fire, and that is like a statewide fire department. And they are, from from my understanding, is they are tasked with specifically handling wildland fire. So you have all these city departments that are focused on protecting cities, but Cal Fire is really focused on protecting the majority of the state from wildfires, and that is what they do. And 
they don't, uh, from what I understand, they don't really go on medical calls and they don't really respond to like specific house fires. They are specifically, um, uh, designed to handle wildfires, mm-hmm. um, because they get them so often in Oregon. We do have like the department, uh, you know, of, of forestry to help handle wildfires, but our system is a little more broken. It's, uh, it's more fragmented. There's multiple agencies involved and, um, I'm not even going to get into it cause I, cause <laughs> I don't really do that. I'm I just work at a single fire department and I just handle the calls in our, in our little district. And that stuff is kind of beyond me to, oh, to be honest. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I don't really do that, that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> so what can, can you talk about what, like what you do? Like what, what does a day look like? What does a week look like a month look like normally? Yeah. A typical day is I come in and uh, I'll try to work out in the mornings because um, our job is very physical. And if I don't stay in shape, then I'm not going to be able to do, do this job. Um, and then We'll check out our rigs. Um, so we'll make sure that we have everything we need in the ambulance, make sure our fire engine is good to go. And um, that involves like inventorying the tools, making sure the saws work, uh, making sure the pump uh, is working, making sure there's water in the in the tank. Um, you know, and these checks could take an hour or two or three um, at the start of, of a shift. And, um, you know, in the ambulance, we have, you know, about 50, since we're paramedics, we have about 50 drugs on there. And we, I think we have literally like 200 things on the ambulance. So that we, that we inventory and keep track of. And, and so these are all things that, you know, we have to know how to, how to use on calls. Um, and, uh, so aside from going on calls, um, then, you know, we might have some training, and then, you know, typically after that, you know, it's about lunchtime. And after lunch, then I kind of try to do my projects and computer work that I've, that I have. And, um, and then it's dinner time. And then, you know, usually in the evenings, we, for the most part, try to, uh, relax or catch up on charts. And then during the night, we try to get some sleep. Um, at the particular fire department that I work at, most nights we average about four hours of sleep. Um, and then we spend probably most, most nights about half the time where we're up running calls. So, so like, so how long is this? All those things. Um, oh, our shift is uh, currently at our fire department. It's about 48 hours. Okay. Yeah. And we run about 10 calls a a day. Okay. Each call takes about, uh, most calls take about an hour or to to handle so so you know those those tasks that i've listed out it might not seem much but i'm trying to get all those things done in between the calls and each call is about an an hour or two um because we also work on the ambulances so and we don't have any hospitals in our district all the all the hospitals are at least half an hour away so when we get a medical call like say someone's having chest pain, maybe they're having a heart attack or it's just chest pain and it's not a heart attack. Well, I have to take that person to the hospital. Right. So, well, you know, I might start an IV, get a 12 lead EKG, start, uh, 
give them some aspirin and nitro to help reduce their blood pressure and take away their chest pain. And then I monitor them all the way to the hospital, go to the hospital, drop them off. And on the way back, try to complete my chart. And, you know, that whole process could take an hour or two. Um, and, you know, and then we get back, you know, the next call could be an accident. And so let's say there's, you know, two cars crash into each other. Well, now we have potentially at least two patients. Sometimes it can be three or four or five patients. And if it's relatively minor at car accident, we might take a couple patients in each ambulance. If it's a really bad accident, then, um, we might, um, you know, have to call additional ambulances into the area. But if we do a lot of procedures, um, where like, say someone is in a very bad state where they're unconscious there, maybe they, uh, had a severe head injury. Um, we might have to intubate them. We might have to take control of their airway. We might have to use up a lot of equipment in the ambulance. So when we get to the hospital, our ambulance, you know, mm-hmm. is like destroyed. Yeah. And we have to restock it, clean it, wipe all the blood away, decontaminate it. You know, that could take an hour to 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 do, even with people helping. So, you know, you get back in service, you know, that just that one call could have took two, one, two, potentially three hours sometimes to really to really handle. So ten calls can really uh take up our day. Now, I'm not going to lie. There's days where, you know, we only get maybe uh, three or four or five calls and it's a slower day, but then we have days where we get 15 calls and they make up, they make up for the slower days. So, you know, and then you, and then you might get back and you've been running 10 calls and you're tired and and then you can get a house fire and now and now you're in structure gear trying to put out a fire or if it's the summer you know especially in the afternoon it's a hot day you could get a wildland fire and now you have to put on your wildland gear and you know wildland fires are the ones that typically take the longest to put out right. um if we can catch them really early it's just a small grass fire we can get that put out pretty quick but if we show up and it's already a field fire that's a couple of acres you know, we're going to be out there three, four, five hours, um, wipe, you know, putting it out, mopping it up, making sure it's not going to spread anywhere. Maybe there has to be an investigation that's done to, to see if anybody started on purpose. Just depends on what gets destroyed. So is that up to you guys to, to run an investigation like that or? So I believe that the state requires that each fire gets investigated. Um, if it's just a really small fire where it was obviously an accident, then the engine company officer can just usually write up the report and it doesn't have to go anywhere meaningful. But if it, if there's a lot of property that gets destroyed or somebody gets seriously injured or dies or a firefighter gets injured or it's malicious or it seems like it was set on purpose then we have to get investigators involved and sometimes we have to even call in the state fire marshal to come in and investigate it and figure out what happened. So, because, you know, if it's, if it was intentionally set, that person, hopefully we can find out who that person is and hold them accountable. Or if it's a kid, maybe we can educate that kid and 
figure out how to right. make sure that kid doesn't start any more fires. So, wow. So that's a lot to, to do. And you said 48 hours. So you're basically working two full days a week. Is that usually how it goes? Yeah. Uh, two days on four days off. And I like to tell people that it's really like, um, three or four days on and maybe three or four or, and then, and then maybe, two or three days off because the hardest part about my job right now, I think is just the sleep deprivation. And, you know, like I'm sure you've had some nights where you didn't sleep well, like how many hours of bad sleep does it take you to be groggy the next day? How many hours? Uh, I don't, I don't know the answer. Like, well, I mean like <laughs> if you sleep like eight hours, you probably feel good. Yeah. Right. But if you sleep six hours, you probably don't feel so great the next day, right? Yeah. Now imagine you sleep two hours the first night, and then the next night maybe you only get three hours of sleep. It could take sometimes it takes me two or three days of sleep at home to re- fully recover and and feel myself again. And I actually I started. Uh, oh, you want to do your first product endorsement? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I started wearing this Whoop watch and okay. and it's a fitness tracker. One of the things that it particularly does is it gives me a recovery score and it's based off of my heart rate variability. It's based off of my resting heart rate and my respiratory rate and, um, and how many hours of sleep I got. And, you know, what? so I've been wearing this for about, two months now. And part of the reason why I want to wear it is because I wanted to see how my shift work was affecting my health and my sleep. And, you know, virtually every time I'm at work, you know, my, so when I'm not at work, my recovery scores can be aside from all other factors. Um, my recovery scores can be in like 70, 80, 90% range by the, by the end of my shift, my recovery scores are way below 50%. You know, mm. the last week, actually, I got off a 72-hour shift and my recovery score was 1%. You know, that's as low low as it goes. My heart rate variability got cut in half, which is very bad. That's like, that's like aging three decades, you know? And wow. so, like, that's equivalent to eight. Like, I mean you know, don't quote me on exactly on that, but, but like my heart rate variability went down to like what, you know, a 60 year old man's heart rate variability might be for, and it took me like three nights of good sleep to get that kind of recovered to back to a normal level. But, um, I only got my heart rate variability back up to about 80%. So, so the, you know, the, I think the biggest toll that this job takes on us is just the lack of consistent sleep. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, you know, when I was younger, losing sleep, it it didn't seem like that big of a deal, but I was younger. I could deal with it. <laughs> and it's not that I'm particularly old now. I'm I'm 30, but man, like I really feel it when I well, <laughs> when I don't get to sleep. Well, you also have such a physical job that like and you have to stay so alert that I I just I can't imagine like running off two hours of sleep and trying to put out a house fire. Like that's just, that's insane. Yeah. You adrenaline, know, adrenaline, right. Is that, is that, is that what kind of keeps, keeps you going? Yeah. Adrenaline's an interesting, um, hormone. And 
something that we're starting to learn too in the fire service is, you know, how the tones even affect our, our, uh, our heart rate and our heart health. And, you know, it used to be that fires were the number one thing that killed us in that decades ago. But once we got air packs, um, several decades ago, you know, as a fire service, we really weren't dying that often from house fires or cancer. I mean, cancer is still a problem in the fire service, but it's not mm-hmm. as, as bad as it, I think as it particularly used to be because we're wearing air packs now. But so when we get tones that go off in the station, we've actually recorded it. My coworkers and I personally have recorded this where just from the tones going off, our heart rate jumps to 150 beats a minute. Wow. And, and it takes a few minutes for the heart rate to come back down. Um, you know, if your heart rate jumps 100 to 150 beats a minute, 10 times a day, just from tones going off because of that stress response, that already sets you up for, um, you know, renal fatigue and getting excessive cortisol spikes in our bodies. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the startling statistics in the fire service is that, you know, we do have a problem with heart attacks. That's actually the number one killer of firefighters currently mm-hmm. is, mo- mo- you know, uh, we have about maybe a hundred firefighters a year dying in the technically in the line of duty in America. And, uh, the number one killer is heart attacks. And it's just the amount of stress that accumulates on our bodies over a 20, 30 year career. So that is something that we as a fire service, we're trying to be more proactive about. We're trying to find ways on how can we reduce our cardiac load? How can we reduce the stress on our, on our heart as we're going throughout our shift? There's a lot of things that are really obvious, you know, like being a healthy weight, working out moderately, uh, making sure that we're well hydrated throughout the shift so that we don't sure. become dehydrated when we're fighting a fire. Um, but there's some less obvious things that um, that most people just don't know about. And we're, we're kind of trying to figure out how to do that. Like instead of having aggressive tones that wake us up, can we put in maybe more gentler tones that kind of es- escalate and start off quieter in the, in the station? So those are little things that we're trying to work on and, um, influence the culture of the fire service um, to try to make it more heart healthy. Hmm. I'm sure that on on your days off, you're you're probably t- trying to take it easy and not you know skydiving or anything else that's gonna that's gonna get your heart rate up. No, and my, my you know I I feel bad because uh, sometimes my wife wants to do things on the first day off, but I really try to take that first day easy. Try to catch up on my sleep. And one of the things that I've actually started doing is um, like my recovery day is, you know, if if I got some okay sleep um, at work, what I might do is when I get home, I'll go on a mile walk and then I might go to the gym and I might uh, do a light workout and go to the sauna and swim some laps and get back in the sauna, maybe the steam room and just kind of have a, a relaxing day and try to get my body even more tired so that that night I can sleep really well. Um, but if I have a very busy shift, like there's been shifts where I didn't sleep either night. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I'm running 
two days on almost virtually no sleep. Those days when I come home, I just have to hit the bed. There's there's no doing uh, walks in nature. There's it's just go to straight to <laughs> Last bed. Last thing you're and, thinking about. Well, no. Yeah, and you know, and sometimes on those days, like I have to sleep for twelve hours to even like be be ready to wake up again. And and then you know, I wake up and it's midnight, and it's like, oh, I'm up now. <laughs> you know, now my sleep is screwed up for. <laughs> the next couple of days as soon as you get it back on track you're you're back back to work yeah yeah and so on those tours where like you don't sleep at all it could take you three or four days to get back on track and and then you're back on shift and you know you're hoping that the next shift it's not as busy but yeah. if it is you know it, it so yeah like that's something that I've been really working on is trying to as best as I can try to sleep on shift at night when I can and, you know, not stare at my phone when I'm <laughs> laying in bed, making sure I don't drink too much caffeine. Um, try to cut out, you know, try to stop drinking caffeine, uh, in the afternoon, only drinks like a cup or two in the morning. Um, all these things are important because I mean, it's scary when you read some of these sleep statistics, like one bad night of sleep, can reduce your immune system's ability by 50% the next day, you know? So you're like twice, you're at least twice as likely to get sick that first night that you um, don't get any sleep. So, and I've been doing this for 10 years. I have 10 years of, <laughs> of continuous bad sleep. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I think Tony Robbins or, or someone just put out a book about like and literally just wrote about sleep and how important sleep is for your health. And it, it's just funny how for so long we had this hustle grind culture mentality of like, Oh, all you need is four hours. Just like, you know, go after the build your, you know, your, your future, you can sleep later. And now people are like, Oh, hold up. Like sleep is actually, it's huge. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Like, uh, Warren Buffett has a pretty, good story or analogy that he likes to tell. And, um, there's a pretty famous video of him talking to a group of high schoolers. And, you know, he says, you know, imagine you were given one car and you could pick any car you want on the face of the earth. And that is the car that you get and, and you can, you can do whatever you want with the car. But the only caveat is that it is the only car you get to drive for the rest of your life. You know, how are you going to treat that car? Are you going to be racing it? Are you going to be, um, you know, jumping it off dirt ramps? Um, or are you going to be washing it every week? Do you think you're going to wait six months to change the oil? Or are you going to change the oil like every, every month? Because you know, this is the only car you have in this. And once this car is done, that's it. You don't have any more cars. You know, are you going to, are you going to treat it gently? Are you going to, you know, drive it a thousand miles a day or are you going to only drive it when you really need to? Right. And you know, that's what our body is. Right. You get, you get one body and that's it. So if you, you know, as, as much as I appreciate hard work and, um, and having, you know, maybe hustling for at times, but um, I, I, I realized like, Hey, this is the only body I have. I really need to focus on making sure my health is as good as it can be. It's not, and that's not the mindset I've always had because when I was younger, I could get away without sleep. But now that I'm even just 30, you know, a couple, 
uh, a couple hours lost of sleep from work, it really affects me. Yeah. And so that is something I really try to uh, uh, be cognizant of and really keep an eye on and prioritize. And, you know, if I have a bad night of sleep, I'm staying home. I'm not <laughs> going to go uh, hang out with my friends in a bar till midnight because that's going to, you know, now, now I'm just pushing off my recovery another day and, you know, and then my blood pressure is going up <laughs> and I'm gaining weight and my heart variability is going down and my resting heart rate is going up and all these, all these th- stressors are making things worse. So very cognizant of, of everything you put in and everything you do. It sounds like, yeah, like that's, you kind of been forced to, to be that way. Yeah. I mean, I've been kind of on a proactive health journey the last couple of years. I've actually lost, uh, like 40 pounds, um, awesome. in the last 17 months or so. Wow. And a lot of that has just been from making small, sustainable, uh, lifestyle changes in, in my mind, at least some people think some of the things I've implemented are not sustainable, like but what? Uh, like one of the things I've started doing is intermittent fasting. Okay. And and I don't fast the same way every day. I've kind of learned to listen to my body um, and and to understand how and when I can fast. But like most days, I try to stop eating at 5 p.m. and not eat anything before going to bed. And for, for a couple of reasons, you know, one, your sleep is better if you're body isn't focusing on digesting food. Um, the other reason is, um, you know, people get gastric reflux disease where stomach acid actually goes into your throat and burns up your throat. Um, and that's from you. A lot of times that's from people overeating or having food in their stomach while they're still laying down in bed. Cause that, cause as you lay flat, that food can travel and that stomach acid can travel up. So, so for those reasons, I try to stop eating earlier in the day. And then, um, maybe once or twice a month, I started doing, um, like 36 hour fasts and, you know, uh, it's, it's, it can be a little complicated to get into, but essentially like the first year I tried doing that, I couldn't do it. And I, I was having extreme cravings. And what I learned over time is that I just wasn't getting the electrolytes I needed So now when I do like a 36 hour fast, I just make sure I eat a little extra salt or I do like electrolyte powder in my water and I can go the whole 36 hours without eating. And I don't even have like cravings. It's not that I have this extreme willpower. It's just, I don't have the cravings during that time because I figured out how to control them in my body. Um, and it helps to like have a balanced meal before you start the fast. Like Make sure there's a good amount of fat and protein in your last meal and some, and you know, some carbs. At first I was kind of trying to do this keto thing where I was limiting carbs completely. Been there. And you know, it had some, it had some good effects for a little bit, but like I've realized that's not sustainable for me. So although I do try not to eat an excessive amount of carbs, but I, I try to eat whole food now. And I just try to um, not, you know, eat a bunch of simple sugars. So if I do like my last meal is a good amount of fat, a good amount of protein, and just um, some some uh, some whole food carbs, um, then like I 
then I could do my fast and last the whole time with just some electrolytes and I'm good to go. And so, nice. Um, what about when you're, when you're on shift is, is, uh, do you all have time for healthy meals or like how, how does that normally work when you're on shift? You know, it's, uh, it just depends on, you know, if all firefighters are different. There's no, um, you know, there's really no, uh, like as a, as a culture, we're trying to influence firefighters to be healthier, but there's, you know, just like any, any profession, there's people that take their health seriously and there's people that don't. Some people eat, you know, whatever, whatever they want to eat and they eat fast food every night. Me, I'm in particularly, you know, I try to now eat whole foods like, you know, cooking, like actually cooking a steak and eating you know, vegetables like broccoli and, um, and carrots and, you know, like, like, like a typical breakfast for me at work is going to be like steak and eggs and maybe some broccoli. And then my dinner might be like, you know, a steak and a stir fry of vegetables and that's cooked in like olive oil or butter. And, you know, that might be what I eat, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Maybe there, maybe I'll have like some dark chocolate to, uh, satisfy a, a, a sweet craving, but yeah, like I really have cut out all this junk. Like, you know, if you, if you just, if you just read the package of almost anything that comes in the box, there's a ton of junk in there. That's not nutritious. It doesn't really provide any value to your body. So if you can kind of cut that out and get your body to run on more, real food you know um i just made myself feel better and i have lost weight because of it and i feel stronger and so i've been trying to counter act or counterbalance the lack of sleep i've been getting just by doing all these other things in my life to make my body healthier so that's awesome so i've just been curious um what why the why the 48 hour shifts like why is that the most efficient way to to do things not every fire department does 48 hour shifts um a lot of the busier departments do 24 48s um the why we were why we do 48s is because um we used to be a lot slower um you know a decade ago our department used to run maybe two or three calls a day but the community we've grown it has grown. And so now we're running about 10 calls a day. So, but you know, we, we operate 24 seven. We're there on weekends, holidays, evenings, and weekends. Um, like someone has to be there when you call 911, somebody has to respond. So it's a balance of, you know, like people want, people want to work a certain schedule, but at the same time we have to provide coverage. Right. And it has to be, has to be cost effective. So there's multiple factors in determining what the schedule is. And so that's why a lot of departments kind of have three shifts for the most part. And, you know, if it's a 24 hour shift, you'll have a shift work 24 hours, then B shift works for 24 hours. And then C shift works for 24 Mm -hmm. hours. Or in our case, we have a shift working 48, then B shift works 48 and then C shift works 48. And it's kind of on a rotation like that. Um, you know, if you tell one group of firefighters, Hey, you only work nights and the other ones, you only work days, you know, probably the people that have to work nights are going to quit. Right. Um, and, but 
you know, when when you do kind of like a twenty four hour cycle, it's kind of more fair because more you balanced. Can, yeah, everybody kind of gets the the they get to work the day, but they also get to work the night. Um, opportunity to have their sleep deprived, uh, interrupted in equal amounts, right? So it's it's hard to make a schedule where it's like, hey, you work days, you work nights, yeah. and all the people that work nights are are gonna hate it and not and they're not gonna show up and and do the job, right? So it's it's just a balance of money, politics, who <laughs> wants to work what shift, how busy the department is, but most departments end up doing like 2448s or 4896s. So yeah. And and believe me, people in our in our industry argue it all the time. What shift we should be working, how short the shift should be, how long they should be. Some people would want to work three days on so that they can have six days off. And there's I, I don't know of any department that actually does that, but there's people that talk about wanting to do that, you know. So it's uh it's it's just uh every department is a little different so yeah that makes sense that's a good question i yeah i just yeah when you said the whole night and day thing that, that makes sense um yeah. it is more balanced it is more fair um the way the way it's set up yeah and then and then the other thing is uh you know everything we do is kind of uh as a team it's not really a job where you can be like a a very like you can't just be an individual yeah like for instance, like, um, you know, when you work as a, for instance, like a police officer, a lot of police, they, in a lot of departments, they work by themselves and their, you know, their shift is them and their cruiser. They might run calls with other cops, but sometimes they're, it's just them on, on in their police cruiser, right? So their shifts can kind of be more variable, right? But when you are working at a fire department and let's say you're all responding, you know, on the fire engine together. Well, you kind of have like a shift dynamic. You have a supervisor. That supervisor has certain expectations. It can be very disruptive, disruptive to have, you know, a firefighter show up and leave and show up and leave and somebody else comes in to fill that shift. And not that it doesn't happen. It does happen, but, um, because you know emergencies happen or somebody takes vacation or somebody gets sick or they get injured and they have to take sick leave but you know if if every single day we showed up and you know somebody showed up at 3 p.m and left Mm -hmm. at 3 a.m and then somebody else had to come in like it would just be very hard to get the shifts filled so yeah because you're working with the same group of people day or you know weekend weekend out um for the most part not about you know majority of the time you're working with the same people every day depending on what's going on. But yeah, you have, you have your shift and those are the people you work with. And so you kind of get used to how everybody does things so that, you know, like, you know, when, when, when I go on even just something uh, simple, like a chest pain call, you know, I don't have to tell my partner, get me a 12 lead. He knows that I want a 12 lead because we've done it so often. Um, Or, you know, when we, when we go on a car accident, I know my captain wants me to go out there, count up the patients and tell him how many patients we have so that he can order the appropriate amount of ambulances. He doesn't have to ask me that. Right. But then when I work overtime on another shift and I mean, now I'm pretty familiar with everybody that works there, but 
you know, each captain has their own way of wanting to do things. And so um, it can be a little disruptive or it can be a bit of a learning curve to have different working with completely different people every, every day. So it's kind of nice to have the same people because the expectations are kind of set. Everybody kind of knows how to operate. Um, and we have standard up operating guidelines and fire rescue protocols. Everybody follows, but you know, everybody has their nuances that they like to do. So, yeah, no, it makes sense, right? It's not an individual job. Like you said, uh, where I can just fill in a, a slot and, and work. You have to kind of know the team and work as a team. So yeah. that, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, no, it's cool, man. This is, this is all really interesting stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm learning all this stuff today. Um, but, uh, just, I guess out of, out of curiosity, what's, what's, what's next for, for Alex? Like what I know when we first met up, you mentioned there's potential for a, for a podcast at some point, but what, what else, what else is going on with you? What's, what's the future looking like? Yeah, that's, uh, one of my ulterior motives for being here. I wanted to <laughs> to see how, how you, how you, you did this. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I'm really working on right now is, um, on my leadership skills and, um, something that I do at our current fire department is I also teach a lot of the recruit academies. And so I'm kind of in this role where I'm an instructor and teacher and, Um, you know, I aspire to potentially become a captain one day and, you know, if that all works out, I want to make sure I'm a good leader. And even if I don't become a captain, I want to make sure I'm a good follower. And, you know, even when you're a follower, you can be a, a leader in that capacity. So, you know, my personal journey right now is trying to become the best firefighter and instructor and paramedic and leader that I can become and really focusing on having good leadership skills. Um, cause you know, I wish I'd have realized this much sooner in my career, but leadership is probably the most important thing in any industry mm-hmm. to succeed. And, um, and so I'm kind of learning that now and I'm trying to become a better leader and a better follower and a bit ba- and, a better, uh, people person. And, um, and so those, those are the things I'm kind of focused on for right now. Um, so, and you know, a podcast that I was, you know, telling you about that I I potentially want to do is, um, is just deep diving into some of the, um, research that is done in our industry that, you know, we have these reports that are very, very detailed. They're hundreds of pages long and nobody likes to read them. So, <laughs> oh, so I was thinking like, Hey, I could read these reports, put them in a, into a digestible format. That way I learned about them. And then everybody in our industry who doesn't want to read these long detailed reports and learn from them, maybe they can just listen to a short podcast about it and learn from it. So, you know, that, that was uh, an idea that I briefly shared with you. And so I, you know, I'm, and I might, I might do that, but uh, I guess I, I have a couple goals that I'm working on right now and um, my personal development goals. And I think that might be something that I try to throw in here in the next couple of months. We'll see. That's awesome. That's awesome. Have you read uh, much of John Maxwell at all? 
don't know. Yeah. Uh, which, big, which books did he write again? He's a big leadership guy. Uh, like developing leader within you uh, was a big one. Um, gosh, there's a, there's a few leadership based books. Uh, no, I haven't read his stuff. Um, the, 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 the two biggest sources that I'm learning from right now is uh, from Jocko Willink. Have you, have you heard of him? No, I'm not. He's a Navy SEAL commander. He's, ri- he's written books like uh, Extreme Ownership. Oh, okay. Um, I've heard of that book. Yeah, How, how, how Navy SEALs uh, Win and, um, and that Economy of Leadership. So I've been learning from that. But also, uh, my wife and I started watching uh, Ted Lasso. Have you okay. heard of that show? Yes. Man, you know, what an inspiring and motivating way to be a leader. And so I know I, I don't really know. I, I've only, my wife and I have only watched uh, like six or no, I think we're like eight episodes in, but, and, I, and I'm not going to like spoil anything for people who I haven't seen <laughs> it yet, but you know, Ted is a very uh, positive, inspirational leader, but he's not and the way I like, and what I re- what I like about how they wrote the, 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 the TV show is, you know, he's got some faults, but one of the best things about his faults is that when he does do something wrong, he's quick to own up to it and apologize about it, and still do it in such a positive manner. And so, as I'm watching this show, I'm like going back to the leadership principles that Jocko Willink teaches and, uh, and, and like, I, I'm even telling my wife, like, look, he did this and Jocko talks about this and that was a good leadership move. But he, you know, Jocko's kind of like this kind of disciplined, scary guy a little bit. Like if you're, if you're not familiar with him, he can seem pretty intimidating. Whereas Ted Lasso has this very warm approach to people and so that, so I kind of am trying to combine those two where, you know, I, I'm, I'm disciplined where, it, but at the same time, I'm very warm and approachable like Ted Lasso. And so I'm, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the two big leadership, um, sources that I'm kind of learning from right now. I've read a bunch of other leadership books, but those are the like two sources right now that are really resonating with me and I'm learning from. That's cool, man. It's yeah. uh, I, I could see that now. I could see I could <laughs> see both those qualities in you, which is pretty cool. Um, but like that's that's cool that yeah, you you found and you saw an example that like resonated with you, and you know what they're saying is going to help you get there too. So yeah, that's kind of the it's kind of the idea behind uh, behind personal growth. So that's uh that's cool, and it seems like you've been on really focused on personal growth from the start of this journey into like into becoming who you are today and to becoming a firefighter? Yeah. A lot of my personal growth initially was always focused on the technical aspects of the job. And, you know, that's important. Uh, but I think I neglected to really develop myself as a, as a, as a leader. Um, and I think I, I developed some, some decent people skills, um, early on. I read this book called how to win friends and influence people. And all the techniques that I learned in that I use in my everyday patient interactions. And to this day, as far as I know, I've never had a patient complain about me and I've treated thousands of patients at this point. And what a, you know, 
uh, you know, I'm not going to get into all the bad things in, in being a paramedic, but like, you know, a lot of times we get aggressive patients and we get, um, patients who are on drugs or they are having mental health crises. And, and I, I wish I could tell you that every paramedic handles those patients gracefully, but it's not true, but not that I'm trying to toot my own horn, but I feel I, I I give a lot of credit to reading that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and applying all of those techniques to interacting with patients. And I um and I've had great and I believe I've had great success with my patients because I show up smiling, you know, not in an obnoxious way, <laughs> um, introduce myself, ask for their name. I try to empower my patients and not take away choices from them. I try to develop a win-win situation with my patients. Um, I try to listen to them, make sure they understand that they're being heard. And I seek input from them. I don't boss my patients around. I really try to help my patients feel like they're important and they're part of the process. And not that we're just these, you know, all-knowing paramedics showing up, telling them what to do. And these are all techniques that I kind of learn from winning uh, friends and and yeah. uh, influencing people kind of like, kind of like what uh, sounds like you read the book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I've been pretty good with interacting with my patients. Um, I don't think I've, unfor- I, I think I neglected to develop myself as a leader though, and to be a positive person for all my coworkers. And so that's something that I'm really working on right now to make sure that I have a, a mission, a purpose and, and be able to be a positive influence in my organization and not just um, not only treat our civilians well, but to be able to really learn how to treat all my fellow coworkers well as well. Yeah. I, it's definitely something that I, I struggle with as well. I, I think for a while um, when I was working retail and, and going up in the ranks there and, you know, getting into leadership positions, I was really focused on leadership and developing leadership qualities um, and now I kind of got into a individual contributor role and my job in many cases is very independent. Um, so a lot of times, even though I have a team, it's so easy to just not really try to pour into that team or, or give that team input um, when, when you, when you should, and you should have that, um, like you said, should always be focused on, on leadership. If you want to progress in your career, it's the people that are showing leadership that stand out when you know they're looking at promotions when they're looking at new projects and initiatives so uh definitely a good reminder uh, to to keep thinking about that yeah you know i would say for you i mean uh you know you working from home you actually have to try even twice as hard as someone who's in the office to be a good leader because you know when you're in the office you kind of get these passive opportunities right. to be a leader versus you know, when you're working from home, you know, if you're going to build a relationship with your team, you're going to have to really be proactive about that. It's, it's not, you're not going to be able to just passively do it. It's it's going to be twice as hard for you to, to do that. You know, there's, you know, there's some nice things about working from home, but I think working from home does make it much more challenging for you to, yeah. to, to be a leader because you have to intentionally choose to build relationships and set time set time aside for that so yeah yeah. and it's hard when it's over like a message board or over like hey let's get on a zoom call like or a team zoom call 
Um, I it was part of the reason I was telling you I have a I have a coworker that's, that works out of my house now. Yeah. Part of the reason was like we're like, dude, this is this sucks. Like yeah. not being to see people, not being able to have input and like mm. bounce ideas off of each other. Yeah. It, it does suck at some points. Uh, so it's nice that I have um I have I have him here so we can at least have some sort of input. But uh, no, I I totally I totally hear you. Yeah, I'm sure it's been a lot easier for you to build that relationship with that person just because you know you're much just physically closer and you instead of like having to do a zoom call you can just you know walk up to his desk and, yeah and actually interact with that person yeah yeah because it's you know like you said in the office you can be going to the break room and walking by a coworker and stop to talk for a few minutes and yeah. um even hey maybe you're wearing a interesting t-shirt and they they notice that and that that's something that starts a conversation when you're behind a, a computer screen it's it's not as easy so um so that's that's definitely something that uh that that has has changed now but uh no that's that's all cool stuff man so i had a, I had a question that i is slipping my mind now uh that was that's gonna be a, a good one to, to bring it home but uh I'll, I'll i'll think of it here in a second um well i i listened to your first two podcasts and kind of what i'm kind of picking up on the vibe is that you know this is you're kind of trying to give people a perspective of how they got to where they are in life and you know i think one of the, i think what people should um take away is you know it doesn't really matter what job you have it doesn't matter what your title is you know whatever you're doing in life you're serving somebody whether you are you know just buying and selling stuff on eBay or you're doing construction or you're a doctor or you're serving fries at a fast food place, like everything you do impacts other people. And maybe it's not always face to face. Maybe 90% of the time you never interact with another person, but you know, you only interact with another person 10% of the time, but you don't have to have a certain title. You don't have to be in a certain position to, be a leader, to be a servant of humanity, to make a good living. Um, you know, you don't have to, um, you know, you, you can provide good customer service. You can, you can, and, and you can take care of people and make a good living at the same time. Um, so, you know, if, if you haven't to the listeners, if you haven't taken time to develop, leadership qualities if you you know i don't think it's this soft skill that can't be learned i do think it's a skill that can be learned i do think it's something that you can develop it's something that you can definitely um invest in and you can have um positive relationships in the workforce and you can have positive relationships with your customers and you can succeed yeah. no matter what industry you're in yeah and you can develop any of that if if you focus on it. Because that's one thing that I took away from your story is if you have that end goal in mind, um, you you literally can tell yourself that anything is possible. I mean, to to an extent. Yeah. Um, but if if you're willing to put in the work and and the dedication to block out priorities, you know, everyone has the same twenty four hours in their day. Uh, people that get farther, people like Elon Musk, are there because they're just extremely focused on whatever they're trying to accomplish. Um, yeah. And that you know, seems like the, the did, lesson I, here. Did you look into that book outliers? 
I not, not yet. No, I've not. Oh man, you should definitely should definitely look into it. Um, well, actually, I don't think they talk about Elon Musk in there, but I I read Elon Musk's uh, biography, and you know, like Elon Musk, he didn't happen by accident. Like his dad was uh, an his family was an entrepreneurial family, so he grew up in an entrepreneurial family, and he was surrounded by books. And mm-hmm. he was surrounded by entrepreneurism. So it's no accident that he started building things early and just always had this mindset to be an entrepreneur. You know, like myself, my parents both worked minimum wage jobs. There is not an entrepreneurial bone in our in our <laughs> family, okay? So not that I'm not that I'm uh, you know, like I'm 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 happy where I'm at right now, but you know, the, if I'm perfectly honest about my past, the cards were stacked against me for becoming an entrepreneur. My parents basically kind of hammered into me that I was going to be an employee. And that's what happened is that's the environment I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I can't, I, it's not that I can't become an entrepreneur now, but that was the influence I had growing up. And, you know, as I read books and I expose myself to other people, now I have this mindset opening up that I can be an entrepreneur one day if I decide to do something like that. So, um, you know, uh, I, I guess what I was going with is just like, hey, look, you know, your past, it's not that it has to determine your future, but a lot of the influences of your past is, is it makes you who you are, right? It does but you can influence your future, right? Like if you want to be an entrepreneur, but nobody in your family is, well, the next 10 years you can spend being an entrepreneur. Are you going to be successful? No, (laughs) but you're going to fail multiple times, but eventually you'll be successful if you stick it out. Because let's say you give up your 20s to be an entrepreneur to learn how to do that. Well, in your 30s, you'll probably figure it out and you'll be able to do it. And guess what? when you're in your thirties and forties, those twenties will be in your past. And that past that you spent developing those skills will now make you a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. Like, so, um, you know, whatever you set your mind to, you just are going to have to spend time failing at it <laughs> for a while. And failing is not this negative term necessarily. It's just, it's a learning process. You're just figuring out the ways it doesn't work. Right. When I was going through my interviews to become a firefighter, I went to all these testing processes. You know what I found out? I found out all the ways that it doesn't work to get hired, <laughs> right? And eventually, through trial and error, through some mentorship, through some guidance, I figured out what I needed to do to make it happen. So Yeah, fail forward. Yeah, right? fail forward. There you yeah. go. I like that. No, it's it, it kind of, you know, the... the that whole point brings me back to your example of the friend that had a dad that was a firefighter. Mm. Sure. Like you guys both ultimately got to the same point. That person had a shortcut because they had someone that did it. It's just, it's the same thing with entrepreneurial parents. They're mm. an influence on you to help you get there because they've done it. Um, if you don't have those parents and you don't have someone in your life that's done it, uh, you can still get there. It's, it's just going to be harder. Uh, it's going to take you longer, but you can still get there. Um, and that's where, sometimes books and shows and things like that can also influence you now that, you know, we have access to so many different resources is like, maybe you don't have those parents that did this, but you can read a book or go to a YouTube channel of someone that's done it. So what, what I'm curious about you is what influenced you 
like in your past, what do you think, what influences or what people or your, what surroundings got you to this point where you're, where you're recording a podcast? Cause, <laughs> cause, cause it didn't happen by accident, right? Something got you to this point. Um, recording a podcast specifically, I, I mean, I, I've, I used to dabble in YouTube as a kid growing mm-hmm. up. Um, so I've always liked to create, um, I also used to record music, so I, I always liked creating something. Um, and I think it's been lacking. There were several years where I was just working or going to school and I just didn't feel like I had a creative output. Um, and I think for the last couple of years, I've had this idea of, of starting this and a big part of it actually has to do with my buddy that was on my first podcast, Michael. Yeah. Um, cause him and I had hours of conversations when he, before he started his YouTube channel, when I was also thinking about starting a, a podcast and I kept trying to convince him to start the, the YouTube channel. Uh, and finally he did it and, uh, and you know, kind of seeing him, him take off. Um, I, I helped him with a couple of videos and I think it kind of sparked me to finally create something. Um, I think, Obviously, I've been a fan of podcasts for a long time too, and just the outlet it gives people to really get to know someone. Um, and just so far, recording podcasts, this is I think number eight for me. I've gotten to know people better than I ever have before, and I've it's just it's just really fast. Like people interest me, and being around people from various backgrounds and very different backgrounds is super interesting. And I think there's so much out there that it's unknown yeah. because you just don't have a, a way of, of knowing like we've talked about already. If you don't yeah. have people in your life that are firefighters, then how are you going to get there? But if you, if you can learn and you can hear from people, it definitely gives you a step up. Yeah. I think what's most interesting about what you said is that this is not the first thing that you tried. You tried a couple other creative outlets and maybe it just wasn't the best fit for you or you just, didn't have the mindset for it at the time, but, but you, you know, you put in the cumulative hours in creative outlets and then arrived at this point. It wasn't just like, this was the first thing you did. And then you had this whole setup happen overnight. (laughs) Right. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's a, I think that's very interesting about your story. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely been fun and hopefully this is just the start, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, dude, I, I appreciate, I appreciate your time and, and everything. I think, like I said, my, my biggest takeaway from your story is just that extreme focus, um, and extreme ownership mm-hmm. of your life and your future and your destiny and just kind of putting in everything aside. Um, I think again, even with something like this, I I've learned to prioritize my time, um, and, and really focus on, what's going to get me to the next level. And sometimes it's hard. It's definitely encouraging. It's definitely encouraging hearing that in your story. Can I, can I ask you a profound question? (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Have you written your own eulogy? I have not. No. So in, in the book, uh, seven habits of highly effective people, basically, you know, one of the principles is do everything with the end in mind. And so what's the ultimate end is your own eulogy, right? Your own funeral. So, Think about what do you want said at your own funeral, you know, um, and what, you know, like what kind of impact do you want to leave on your family and friends? 
and just reverse engineer that, you know, <laughs> like, let's say for instance, you want to, um, you know, you want to be a good family man, right? Well, all you have to do is ask yourself, what does it take to be a good family man? You know, you know, does it mean you have to spend every waking moment with your family? No, but you have to spend some time, right? So maybe being, um, a business person that only thinks about business is not the way to, to do that about it, go about it. Right. But if you open a business where you can spend 40 hours a week on it, and then the other time you spend being a good family man, you know, when you arrive at that last day, you've accomplished your goal. Or let's say you want to have um, an athletic family. You think health is super important. And, and when you, when you're on your deathbed, you want to, you want to leave the legacy of that you created a healthy family. Well, that means that to reverse engineer that, you're going to have to prioritize spending working out every day and having good nutrition, cooking at home, right? And so you're like, man, I'm eating out all the time right now. But now I know that I want to have a healthy family in the future. So how am I going to have that goal? Well, I got to cook at home. And that's yeah. something I have to prioritize. So Whatever it is you want, just think about what do you want said at your what do you want said at your funeral? What do you want people to say in, in, in your eulogy? And just reverse engineer that. <laughs> and and that's how you get to where and that's how you get to where you're gonna you're gonna no, do. That's, that's a good way to, to see it. It's we I talked about this in another podcast. Actually, I think the next one that's gonna be posted next week about really understanding what you want your life to be and not what you want your career to be. And like kind of reverse engineering it from that one. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, growing up and going to school, it's all about what are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's not mm -hmm. about what your life is going to be. Um, and, and you know, if, if you want your life to be a family life, but you're going to be a lawyer that's working 100 hours a week, they, they don't correlate. So yeah. you have to figure something else out. I really like this eulogy thing, though. This is this is different. Yeah. <laughs> this is bigger. That's actually uh, also um, some good interview advice, too, is like, you know, when, you know, like a question that is often said in an interview is tell us about yourself. Well, a good way to answer that is, you know, write your own eulogy and not that you have to lie in it, but like, you know, what would you want to be said about yourself? So write that in your eulogy and then aspire to be that person. And then in your interview, when they ask you, tell us about yourself, you can actually say, the type of person you want to present to, to the interviewer, you know? It's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Anyway, well, just a little, uh, little last thing there. I think that's, that's where we end. Uh, there we I, don't go. Think, I don't think there's more, uh, more to be said there. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. This is awesome, man. Like I said, it's, it's great. I learned a lot. I hope the audience learns a lot and, uh, yeah, hopefully there's a, there's a next time here in a couple months when you figure out some of your own things. Yeah. Hopefully. All right, man.